Hello, hello. Hello, everyone. And welcome ooh. to, ooh, wow. <laughs> right at the top. Right at the top. <laughs> and welcome to the New York Mystery Machine. Townie Hall, Buffalo the Ghosts. Buffalo Ghosts. Um, welcome, welcome. We're, we're so excited to be back with another all-new episode today. And a beautiful spring day. It's gorgeous out there. It is. Today's a very, today, as we're recording, we, we never really know because you could be listening to it and it could be like last weekend was torrential rain the entire weekend. Right. In New York, at least. We don't know where you are. But here in New York, <laughs> as of recording... It's a beautiful day. Mm-hmm. There's construction happening directly outside the studio. I'm going to try my best to edit all of it out so you guys don't have to deal with it. But alas, that's what it is. Um, we got some really cool stuff this week. Uh, a, a few of you are sending us more and more uh, of your ideas. Yes. Now we've gotten two in the last week. We've gotten two theories about um, the 9-11 piece we did a couple of weeks back. Yeah. Um, and one of them is, is straight up footage. And so we're going to be looking into that and um, reporting back to you all at our recap episode on the in our finale, um, because yeah, you're you're bringing it to us and we're we're looking at it, reporting on it. So continue it um, by any means possible. Um, you can message us on Facebook, comment on Facebook, uh, Instagram, send us an email at um, nymysterymachine at gmail, leave a, a comment in our review. Um, but if you do that, give us five stars while you do it. That'd be nice. <laughs> Uh, any any of those ways, uh, do it. Hit us up and let us know your theories. Um, they're, they're, they are coming through, and we are getting them all. So um, if we don't say thank you initially when we get it, I'll make sure I, I try to go back and say thank you to all the ones there. But we will say thank you on the air uh, in a few weeks when we, we go through them. So thank you, thank you, You thank- know what I really want? Yeah. I really want someone to try to get through a transom window like in a Zitter Fink and see if they can do it and send us the video of it. No, that won't happen. I know it won't, but that's what I want. Well, we could all have dreams. <laughs> um... Uh, yeah. Um, as always, um, generic plug for the Patreon. Um, and if you wanna, if you wanna support us on Patreon, super easy to do. You head on over to Patreon.com/slash/NYMysteryMachine for a little at three dollars. For as little as three dollars a month, you uh, you can help us out by being a patron. For as little as five dollars, you uh, get some extra episodes each month. Um, and we're working on our May episode right now, and that'll be out in a few weeks. And Ooh. then it'll be six. Six patron exclusive episodes. So head on over to Patreon and and support us. We 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 super appreciate. What's up? Five. Five is it five? I don't know. <laughs> if it's five, it's May, great. Right. It's gonna be May. I don't know. Sure. <laughs> I can go through them. Right. It was um the 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 Belasco. Yep. The creepy house. Creepy a uh, Brooklyn house. Yep. Uh, the vortex, vortex and uh, the the Mary pirate, Celeste. yeah, the ship. So yeah, so it'll be our fifth one. Our fifth I stand one. corrected. Our fifth one. <laughs> uh, it is the beginning of the month, and as promised, as always, we need to give our uh, a listener of the month who has generously given us five stars. Um, and this five star. No, nope, no, nope, oh, you didn't spin. spin oh, the, I didn't spin the wheel. God, Adam, how could you even know? <laughs> And this this month's listener of the month comes to us from um, from Apple Podcasts. Um, it is Gypsy IX, uh, Gypsy, and I believe the Roman numeral nine. Yeah, I it assume. is nine. Gypsy nine. Gypsy nine. Gypsy nine uh, says uh, after giving us five stars, really good show, educational and fun, but with ghosts. <gasps> 
I love it. I love it. It's almost like Bafuergos, but, but I love with ghosts. It. So if you are a Gypsy Nine uh, and you uh, you give us a five star review, uh, please, please, please message us. Um, you know wherever you want to message us, you know all the outlets, and let us know. Um, honestly, the best way would be even a DM on uh, Instagram is probably the one we check the most, and uh, we will send you uh, a sticker for being our listener of the month. And we're, again, like I said, I'm, I'm also developing some really cool little buttons for um, Listener of the Month as well. So but thank you for uh, for that yeah, beautiful thanks. review. We love it. We, we like being educational. We love being fun. And, and we, we love, love being for ghosts. Being for ghosts. <laughs> All right. Uh, Christina, where are we at today? Today we are taking a, a journey back in time, about a little over 100 years. We are going to be upstate in Rensselaer. County? Is that how you say it? I don't know. I've never heard that said before. Me neither. All right. Well, we're going with it. Um, and we are actually going to be looking at the case that uh, inspired Twin Peaks. Ooh. So, yeah. So, Mark Frost. It's good, it's good to know. It's, it's important to, for me to state at the beginning of this. Oh, no. I've never Adam, seen a single Adam, episode Adam, of Twin Peaks in my life. Adam. <laughs> it's so good. I, I hear that. Now, season two, there's a little bit in the middle where you can you just have to love the characters. Um, but then it's all good again. And then season three, season three, controversial opinion, incredible season, perfect I, season. I, 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 what I needed 25 years the later. The only thing I know about Twin Peaks is that the captain from How Much Your Mother is on it. He's the the actual lead. No, yeah, I know. Yeah, that's the only thing I know about Twin Peaks. <sighs> all right. Well, we're going to fix this at some point. <laughs> it's fine. Well. Mark I've Frost. also never seen the X-Files. No, I'm exactly Oh, kidding. God, I'll kill you. <laughs> you imagine? I've also never seen the X-Files before. I know you mentioned it almost every other episode, but. Why would you do that to I me? Know. How much of the X-Files did you see? I haven't watched the entire series like sequentially. I've okay. seen the grabbest of grab bags of it. Okay. Like if it's on TV, I'll watch it. All right. Um, I'm going to binge it soon. You should. It's like the next, it's you like my s- next old, old TV show binge. Yeah. Other controversial opinion. Season nine. No, not season nine. Season eight. Pretty damn good. Season nine. Oh, well, there's some moments. Um, You do not need the second movie or the most recent two seasons. There. I said it. All right. You heard it here first, <laughs> folks. You heard it here, folks. First, folks. <laughs> so Mark Frost, who worked on Twin Peaks with uh, David Lynch. He used to go up to this area to visit his grandmother um, when he was a kid, and she used to tell them not to go into the woods because the ghost of this girl who was killed uh, was was going to be out there looking for her murderer. And it sort of stuck with him. And so when they were thinking about ways to make Twin Peaks Twin Peaks, he brought up this story. So that's where we are today. We are in the uh, the town, the hamlet of Taberton, New York, um, which is within the town of Sand Lake in Rennesalaer County. You said the hamlet? The Hamlet, which is smaller than a village. I don't think I've ever heard that. Really? And my entire Hamlet, yeah, a little week. Hamlet, a little Hamlet. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that. Isn't that great? Um, so if you want to visualize where this is, uh, visualize the weird, like I realized looking at this that New York kind of looks like a handshake gone wrong. Um, so just imagine that. And then Taberton is sort of where the New York shares its border with Maine and with not Maine doesn't share a border with Maine with Massachusetts and with Vermont. Um, so it's located about 30 miles east of Albany and 132 miles north of New York City. Um, so Sand Lake has four lakes, Burden Lake, Crooked Lake, Crystal Lake, and Glass Lake. Uh, Crystal Lake was originally known as Sand Lake. Is Crystal Lake as in um, famous for horror movie Crystal Lake? I've never seen or heard of Crystal Lake, the horror movie. It's not that, I mean, isn't Halloween or like Friday the 13th? Never saw it. Oh, okay. Well... We're discovering a lot about our gaps in knowledge today. <laughs> um, 
So back in the summer of 1908, Sand Lake had just over 2,000 people, mostly folks engaged in farming, working in a mill, or producing charcoal during the year. But summer brought in tons and tons of tourists. So remember, this is the age of increased pollution with industrializing cities, and if you could afford to escape the sweltering, disease-filled city for the summer for fresh mountain air, clean lakes, and lovely places to eat, you did. So one mile east of here... uh, is Avril Park, which is another little hamlet of Sand Lake. Um, and within it, there is Chris Crepes Hotel, which served as a restaurant and a tavern and also the barber shop. Um, and it was also one of the first places in Sand Lake to get... A barbershop and a hotel. Shanley Hotel. Oh, man! <laughs> a few weeks ago. was So it's not strange to have Apparently barbershops. Apparently it's a thing in this moment. To not have barbershops in your hotel. Yeah, Shanley Hotel, the same thing. Look at that. Learn something. Um, it was also, for the record, one of the first places in Sand Lake to get uh, the newfangled bit of technology, the telephone. Um, so anyway, moving past Crepes Hotel to give you a little bit more about this uh, was Taborton Road, which to quote Ron Hughes, whose book um, I ended up relying a lot on, uh, quote, it was a windy mountain lane that became increasingly remote and desolate the further you go. Or the further they went. But I changed that because I can't read my notes. Um it was a road that was lined with chestnuts and pine trees and raspberry bushes. And five miles more up, upwards on this road, you stumble upon Tabertown, um, which also had two good lakes and very good fishing. So this is the layout. This is the stretch that we're going to be spending our time in. So Friday night, July 10th, 1908, Lorenzo Gruber, a local teenager from Avril Park, was camping in the woods with his friends, George White and Frank and Edward Sawalski. They were brothers. Uh, they're in the woods near Farmer Conrad Teal's property, a property which also included a pond aptly named Teal's Pond. Saturday, July 11th dawned, and the boys got up to head home, agreeing they'd meet up again later, back at their campsite along the pond. Lorenzo Gruber is the last of the party to leave the pond, and he begins walking back through the woods and reach the edge of the pond and begins to cross over the dam there, and he stops cold in his tracks. He could see his friend George White ahead of him going up a road on the far hill, and Gruber shouts, come back, there's a woman's body in the pond. Oh. So White immediately hurries back, and sure enough, about 15 feet off the south shore of the pond was a woman. She was floating along, face down, arms wide. The rest of her body was under the waterline, but it was clear she was wearing a white shirt waist and that her hair was decorated with hairnets and combs. George White ran to get help, leaving Gruber on the banks of the pond. Uh, George White returned with another teenager friend, Gilbert Miller, who admitted that he had noticed an object in the water the previous day, but hadn't thought much of it. As they stood there looking around, they spotted more clues as well. There was a black straw hat with large plumes and a woman's gloves further up the path. The boys brought the body ashore and Miller ran to get uh, to town to get some proper help. And a group from the town emerged onto the scene. George Alberts, a young man from Crepes Hotel. Frank Smith, a 17-year-old farmhand who happened upon the crowd. He's also described in a lot of the sources as being quite dim-witted. Um, do with that as you will. Uh, Dr. Elias Boyce, a 70-year-old doctor. He directed the bodies to... He did not direct the bodies. Don't direct the bodies. <laughs> hey, body, move over there. <laughs> Great. Uh, He directed the boys to bring the body closer and to turn it over. When they turned over the body, her face demonstrated that she had been in the water a lot longer than originally thought. Uh, Boys estimated as much as a week, perhaps. Uh, Willis Larkin, the undertaker, arrived, collected the body, brought the woman back to the Larkin brothers' funeral home, which also doubled as a town morgue. Dr. Boyce notified the local justice of the peace, and the word was passed along to uh, the district attorney, Jarvis O'Brien, who arrived with his own Dr. Fairweather and Detective K. Now, for the record, I love all of these names, which is why I'm going through them. Um, 
So while the doctors went about the autopsy, Kay and O'Brien set out to interview the folks who found the body, examine the area, and try to figure out who the heck this is. When they arrived on the scene, they learned that those who found the body had never seen the woman before, and when they examined the surroundings, they saw no evidence of foul play. No disturbed ground, no footprints near where the hat and gloves were found, no blood, no broken branches, nothing. Based off that, the going theory was that she went to the pond alone, took off her hat and gloves, and fell or intentionally jumped in. When the detectives arrived at Crape's hotel, Chris Crape himself, the proprietor, informed them of an incident that occurred on July 4th. He had been on the porch of the hotel when a car with two men and two women went speeding by. He said they came from the direction of Avril Park and speculated that they may have been coming from Albany. They drove up Tapperton Road with their lights on and then returned later with only two men and one woman and proceeded in the direction of Troy again without their lights. Um, as for the autopsy, the doctor said the decomposition was so bad the hair and scalp of the woman slid right off. Her clothes were fine, not torn, not removed, nothing like that. And here's how a local newspaper described what the victim wore. She wore an overskirt of black material of good quality, a black silk underskirt, a waist of white material, gauze underwear, patent leather ties of La France make, uh, her hat a black straw high crown, which was found about 20 feet from the edge of the pond, has on it three large black plumes. In her hat was found her gloves, black kids, and in the hat a stick pin with an initial letter, which may help in identification. So the letter on the pat pin was H. And in addition, the shirtwaist had a gold-plated society pin that also had the initials HID. There was also a pink ribbon very tightly around her neck. Uh, here's what the autopsy revealed. The woman had gold fillings in her teeth, was about 30 or 35 years old. Spoiler, they were way off on that estimate. Uh, and she was blonde. There was a large wound at the top of the back of the head, probably caused by a blunt instrument, but it didn't fracture the skull and a clot had formed between the skull and the brain. The wound would have been enough to kill her, but one doctor also suggested the pink ribbon could have been used in strangulation to further ensure that the woman died, though the other doctors disagreed with this and thought it just got caught. There was no water in her lungs or stomach, so she didn't drown, and the wound would have therefore occurred before she entered the water, because if it happened from falling into the water, we would expect her to uh, be unconscious and for there to be uh, water in her lungs, no stomach, right? So the woman died from the blow and probably died almost immediately. The doctors uh, also disagreed on whether or not she'd been sexually active, but she definitely wasn't pregnant, and it seemed likely that there was some sexual activity because of a rupture. Um, so based off just those findings, the detective. Now, is, when they say rupture, like, are they saying that it like something that's connected to that they connected to this or just in general? They don't know. know. They don't know. And that was also another debate. Um, so the thought is that it probably wasn't connected to to this in the sense that that was not maybe not the motive some some of the again we have four doctors but she's probably having sex and whatever and the rupture is caused by the fact that she was having sex probably but I, doesn't I, mean it had anything to do with the case just means that she's a sexually active person probably. yes and so one of the, the things that the doctors keep debating amongst themselves about is you know if one doctor the one who thinks that maybe the strangulation was part of this with this pink ribbon said that he thought that it came from her corset in which case she would be partially oh, sure. you know undressed uh, at the time but the other said no it looks like it's just decorative um, it doesn't have the right loops for it to be part of a corset um, and the rest of her clothes are all neatly in place so it. it's sort of a question mark the other thing is that it was it, she's decomposing enough that they also weren't quite sure what the rupture meant um 
So based off these findings, the detectives are starting to make some educated guesses about the woman to help identify her. Uh, there's no wedding ring, so we're assuming she's single. Her clothes are chic and well-made, so she had money even if she wasn't actually rich per se. There was no handbag or purse or really jewelry jewelry found on her, so they're kind of thinking robbery could have been a motive. The hat and glove were in a remote corner of the pond, so why was she there? Her clothing would have made it difficult to travel there because the terrain would have been very, you know, difficult and would have ruined her clothes for sure. Mm. If she was forced there, they imagine she would have struggled, but there were no signs of struggle. If she were marched there at gunpoint or knife point or whatever, why use a blunt object to kill her? Um, And if she was killed elsewhere and deposited here, why gently leave her hat and gloves along the roadside? All weird. So then they start thinking, okay, this might be a sudden heat of the moment murder. Uh, Blunt force often means that. And, you know, clearly clues were left around. So maybe the murderer didn't think it through. But he must be familiar with the area because this is pretty remote in terms of like a location. The next day, the newspaper runs the story. And that evening, a 50-year-old man arrived at the funeral parlor. He said his name was John Drew from Troy, New York, and that he read in the paper description of a victim found that matched the description of his daughter. He couldn't identify the body, again, badly decomposed. And then he looked at her mouth and at her front teeth and saw gold fillings, and he confirmed, yeah. Wait, wait, um, who, who... Who sponsored the funeral, like the wake? Uh, there isn't a wake right now. This is just they. Did you say someone walked into the funeral parlor? Yeah, the funeral parlor doubles as the morgue in this town. Oh, okay. Yeah, that makes more sense. I was like, if her yeah. father just was like, well, oh, well, <laughs> like who threw this? Who right. Threw this no, this is just like where they also hold all the bodies. Um. So he looks in her mouth, sees that her front teeth have gold fillings, and he confirms this is this is my daughter, and she is twenty year old Hazel Drew. So Monday morning, John Drew comes back with his wife, Julia, and his daughter-in-law, Eva, and a woman who made Hazel's clothing, a woman named Mrs. John Schumacher. John said he couldn't identify Hazel's clothing or other items, but that the society pin and the hat pin were probably hers based off the initials. Eva was married to Hazel's older brother, Joseph, and was clearly much closer to Julia and John than Hazel ever was, and we'll get to that. Eva and Mrs. Schumacher examined the clothing, confirmed the articles of clothing as being Hazel's, so double confirming her identity. The shirtwaist Hazel wore was actually made very recently, July 3rd. Apparently, Hazel had suddenly arrived at Mrs. Schumacher's and asked for this to be made, and she wanted desperately to wear it the next day because, as she told Mrs. Schumacher, this is what she wanted to wear on her trip to Lake George for the July 4th weekend. Eva confirmed that July 4th morning was the last time she saw Hazel, who had arrived at Eva's house with her aunt, Minnie Taylor, and asked if she could leave her suitcase with Eva for a few hours. But Eva wasn't around when they returned to collect it. So who is Hazel Drew? Hazel Irene Drew was one of five children born in Postenkill, Postenkill, there's an O and an E next to each other, near Sand Lake. In 1902, at age 14, Hazel left to work in Troy as a domestic servant. Her employer, Thomas Hislop, was the treasurer of Troy and was in the midst of controversy and a huge legal mess that almost sent him to jail. So for the record, what happened was an opponent accused him of misappropriation of funds. Hislop denied it. Um, and then he was challenged because $10,000 of Troy money was unaccounted for. Eventually, he's proven innocent, but his career is absolutely ruined. And he ends up being prosecuted because why didn't he know that money was gone? Sure. 1906, she ends up working for John Tupper's family. Now, John Tupper had once been a mayoral candidate. So, again, these are pretty high-ranking people in local society. Mrs. Tupper is the one who gave Hazel that society pin, and Hazel loved it. In 1907, 1908, that winter, 
Hazel fell ill, leaving the Tupper household to recover, and she was away for so long that she ended up being replaced by another worker. Hazel then went to work for the Carey family, her last employer prior to death. So that's her leading up to those months, right? So what was Hazel up to around the time of her death? That's the question of the hour, and the investigators found the family to be either extremely unfamiliar with their own daughter slash sister-in-law, or they were being very cautious and withholding information for whatever reason. Mm. But they swear up and down that she is a good girl and has no boyfriend. Do they have names of any of Hazel's friends in the area? No, but she had lots of friends. She had spent a month in Avril Park last summer, but again with whom? No idea. Eva thought the family she had stayed with was named Bly and was up on Tapperton Road somewhere. Fine. How about at home in Troy? Who are the friends there? No one knew. Was she dating anyone? Unclear. Who would want to hurt Hazel? Unknown. Who was she staying with at the time? So she would have been living with her employers, the Carries. Got it. But her family is sort of, you know, uh. Yeah, yeah, um, That's In fact, that's all they know. They, they know for sure that she was living and working for a family named Carrie. Um... Julia Drew, the mother, saw her daughter last on July 2nd and loaned her $2. Julia also noted that on July 6th, Hazel's belongings arrived at the family home. And while Julia had no idea why, she didn't bother to find out or contact Hazel. So much for that. They go back home to Troy, which isn't that far away. They go home to Troy and on the way stopped to cash, uh, stopped in to cash at Julia's request the life insurance policy Hazel had worth $500. And so detectives start to investigate what what is going on with Hazel. Who decided to cash in the mom? Hazel's mom. After. So they go, they identify the clothing. They're asked by the police a series of questions like, I don't know. I have no idea. And then immediately after. And then on their way home to Troy goes and cashes okay. the life insurance policy. Um. So we're going to turn now to some of the first steps, the first things the investigation uncovers. But before we do, let's take a break. Sure. We'll be right back. If you ever look at our logo, you may notice a cute, furry, black and white creature hanging out the window. That's Ted. When he's not hanging out inside the New York Mystery Machine, Ted is enjoying treats from BarkBox. BarkBox is the dog-obsessed company that's devoted to one goal, making dogs happy. It's a monthly subscription, totally customized box of themed toys and treats for your furry friends. BarkBox provides the best products, services, and content for pups and their people. Every box brings your dog more than $40 worth of toys and treats. Your first box ships immediately. Plus... BarkBox offers a 100% happy guarantee. If your pup isn't happy with their BarkBox, they'll work to make it right. So are you ready to spoil your pup with a BarkBox of their very own? If so, head over to www.barkbox.com slash nymysterymachine. If you use our exclusive link, you'll get a free extra month of BarkBox valued at $35 when you sign up for multi-length plans. Okay, okay, Tedward. I'll say it again for them. Head to www.barkbox.com slash NY Mystery Machine and get your pup some treats today. 
The New York Mystery Machine is brought to you in part by listeners like you. That's right. Head on over to our Patreon, and for as little as $3 a month, you can help keep the pod growing. By joining, you can access a whole bunch of cool stuff, such as mini-episodes, swag, exclusive playlists, and more. Head to www.patreon.com slash nymysterymachine to find out more and become a patron. That's www.patreon.com slash nymysterymachine and join our ever-growing community today. So you listen to our podcast, which means you must love mysteries. But how would you like to solve your very own mystery? Hunt a Killer is an immersive murder mystery game told over the course of six episode boxes. Each box is filled with different clues and physical items such as autopsy reports, witness statements, and more. You'll use these clues to solve an ongoing murder mystery. Work solo or as a team of sleuths to finally crack the case and reveal the murderer. So do you think you have what it takes to hunt a killer? If so, head to www.huntakiller.com and use the code NYMYSTERYMACHINE for 20% off the first box. That's www.huntakiller.com and the code is NYMYSTERYMACHINE. Sign up now and begin the hunt. Bow, bow, bow. Okay, we're back. Um, and last we heard, Chris, uh, um, Hazel's mom just went to go cash in the life insurance. <laughs> yeah, really? The body's not even, I mean, the body's real cold, but like. But also. You know. You know. Barely cold. So uh, the, the investigation really begins in earnest now. Now they have a name, if not a whole lot of information about Hazel. They've got something to work with. And they start to try to figure out what Hazel's life was like leading up to this death, right? The idea being that they need to understand her social circle to hopefully understand who may have had it out for her. Um, so here's what they get. First, the family that employed Hazel. Who are they? Edward Carey was a professor of geology stuff at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in Troy. His wife was named Mary and their daughter, age 11, was Helen. Helen Carey was very impressed with Hazel. Um, and uh, Mrs. You know, Mary uh, uh, Carrie said that she was a churchgoer, very proper, that she'd only worked for the Carries for five months, but that she seemed wonderful. They also spoke to Minnie Taylor, uh, the aunt that Hazel was seen with. Minnie was 39, and she and Hazel were apparently very close, often hanging out a few times a week. Minnie, though guarded, did give some key information. One, that Minnie and Julia had a brother, William Taylor, who had a farm about a half mile from the pond, and that Hazel had spent some weeks there at the farm while recovering from an illness the previous year. Um, it's perhaps worth noting that even though Eva and Joseph Drew were living with William Taylor at the farm at that point, only Eva took care of Hazel, and the men never inquired about her illness, and Eva never offered any explanation to the authorities. Regardless, Minnie also gave the account of Hazel's last weekend. Hazel had requested to have time off for the 4th of July weekend way back in May, right when she returned from Memorial Day weekend trip to New York City with a friend. Hazel's same friend, Carrie Weaver, met Hazel at her employer's house on July 3rd, where they packed for Hazel's trip. Hazel went to Mrs. Shoemaker's to have the shirtwaist made that night, waited until 11 p.m. for the shirtwaist before heading home. 
Hazel left the next morning bright and early to meet her Aunt Minnie, where they consolidated their packing into a single suitcase. Minnie reported that Hazel had packed a, quote, nightgown, underwear, a kimono, some toiletry items, a locket, and a black handbag, as well as new shirt waists. Then they go to Union Station, which is like the Troy equivalent of Grand Central. And Minnie changes her mind. Here's how the Rome Daily Sentinel reported it on July 17, 1908. Quote, Hazel was with me on the fort, said Miss Taylor today. She had intended to take a trip to Lake George and wanted me to go with her, but I didn't want to go there on that day because the trains are so crowded on holidays. So instead, Minnie says, let's stay in Troy. We'll watch the parade. Maybe we can go to Schenectady later to hang out with some relatives. And Hazel, Minnie claims, was very chill about it. They left the suitcase at Hazel's brother's house. Again, that corresponds with what Eva said. They hung out at an amusement park, collected their suitcase later on, went back to the train station, and did end up going to Schenectady. Um, and they stayed with Hazel's cousins slash Minnie's nieces, Anna and Etta. And they spent the whole next day together. 9 p.m. Sunday night, Minnie and Hazel go back to Troy. And according to the trolley conductor, a man named Roy Beauchamp, Hazel got off at Woodman Court with her suitcase and headed for the Carry House while Minnie carried on and went home. This brings us to July 6th, right? 9.30 a.m., July 6th, Hazel joins Mrs. Carry in the backyard. Hazel apparently refused to do her chores and instead announced she was ending her employment at the Carry household, and she promptly left. Here's how Mrs. Carry reported it to the thrice-a-world newspaper. I was nonplussed when she told me after breakfast on the morning of July 6th that she was going to leave us. There had been no trouble or even, uh, nor even slight unpleasantness. I did not question Hazel, and she departed without giving any explanation of her leave-taking. What was the word you used to describe it? Nonplussed. Which means um, confused or... Uh, I never heard that word before, so just for reference. I want to double check this real quick. You should quick. Google it. Let's Google it real quick. Because I've used nonplussed, Long but enough. I've never used it in the way that I think she means it here. Gonna... So nonplussed can mean surprised and confused uh, and unsure how to react. But also often in North America, it can mean not disconcerted and unperturbed. So. But it can. I mean, either of those can be true for this. She mm -hmm. could be like, huh, I'm, I don't know what to do or say about that. Or she'd be like, all right, cool. You know. She sounded like it. She was shocked. She she was like surprised by it, but it didn't seem like it affected her that much. So it could right. be it could honestly right. Be okay, I can see that. Sort of like you know, she's not she's not shaken to her core. Yeah, How yeah, could yeah. you leave me? Yeah, she's she doesn't seem to be shaken to her core about this. Even that that statement seems very like easy peasy. She was like, yeah, I mean, right. came out of nowhere. Came but out of nowhere, but you what know, am I gonna do? What am I gonna do? But there was no issues between us, but she wanted to leave, and that was that. Right. All right. Fair enough. But I also think that that would either of those meanings actually matter a little bit more because I assume the former employer has to be a suspect because everyone's a suspect. You would think. I mean, yeah, just in general, mm -hmm. until you're proven innocent. Mm -hmm. One thing I do find interesting, speaking of this former employer, is that there's a lot more that I read of Mrs. Carey speaking or being interviewed or talking about things than Mr. Carey. And I don't know if that's just because as a domestic servant you know, Hazel would have reported, reported more to, to the, her. To the, to the woman in the house. But she lived in the house. So, like, it's still interesting to me that I don't, I'm blanking, honestly, but I don't remember reading much of anything from Mr. Carey, mm, which is that's interesting. interesting. Um, do with that as you will. Um, so, apparently, at some point that day, the Westcott Express Company, 
was hired by Hazel to pick up Hazel's belongings and deliver them to her parents' house, which they did. And we know that, again, from mom. At 10 a.m., Hazel returns some of the clothes to Minnie. So remember, they had consolidated their packing in one suitcase. She brings it over to Minnie. And Minnie notes that Hazel still had the clothes she had planned to take to Lake George in the suitcase. Minnie tries to get out of Hazel. Well, first of all, why aren't you at work? (laughs) What's going on? And Hazel didn't really give much of an answer. And she simply said that she was going to visit some friends in Watervliet. So who the hell was in Watervliet? Apparently, she did have three friends there. Mrs. Thomas Moran, Mrs. John Rowe, and a Mrs. Evie Huntley, all of whom she had met while staying with the Bly family in Tapperton the previous summer. None of them expected Hazel to show up that day, even though they were good friends and had been in communication. They were all like, yeah, we weren't expecting Hazel. What do you mean she was on her way here? Because everyone thinks she's at work. Everyone thinks she's at work, and also clearly she hadn't communicated with them this plan to show up at their house. Yeah. Which Um, is also connecting to, like, why her stuff was mysteriously shipped back mm -hmm. home out of nowhere. Yeah. So there are a number of interesting weird red flags at this point in the story i don't know do, i don't know if your red flags may be the same as the investigators red flags i mean first off her her clothes being sent back days before she in theory would even left her job no, it would have sent back the day of her the day her of. leaving okay yeah. but still the day of i mean mm-hmm. that's really really specifically like on point well, right i mean that i don't know that's that's interesting um the fact that I mean the the life insurance thing that that was the biggest red Kinda flag weird. for me. Like if I'm mourning my daughter dying, the first thing I do is not cash in her life. And I mean, people don't cash in people's life insurance for like months after they're buried. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I just I just I mean that's just, it, it, sometimes you don't get the life insurance check until months after you're buried. Right. I'm sticking about like raising the sun, where the whole concept of raising the sun, they're waiting for Walter Senior's oh, check to come. That's right. The, the whole point, yeah, the whole thing is Walter Senior's check comes through into right. the mail. It's his life insurance policy, and so, um, yeah, like that's a that just it sticks out as a as a weird red flag. Mm-hmm. Um, just the erratic behavior in general of Hazel herself, it mm-hmm. seems um, very erratic um, to be in a place where you all of a sudden tell your employer you're leaving. Honestly, the, the 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 oddest part is the employer feels less of a suspect to me right now. Who uh, who feels less of a suspect? Like her employer oh, uh-huh. feels less of a suspect. I don't know. I think yeah. that she seems innocent to me. I mean, in theory, she's on the list of like people you need to look into. But I think she was also surprised by all this erratic behavior mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, you've hit on a few things that the investigators are absolutely puzzling over. Um, inc- a couple of things as well. So Hazel, theoretically, has been planning this trip to Lake George since Memorial Day weekend, right? Soon as she comes back with her friend Carrie Weaver, she's like, I'm going to take a trip to Lake George on July 4th. But she waits till the night before to have new clothes made, which is kind of weird. Oh, that's super strange. Right. And she waits until 11 p.m. with Mrs. Schumacher because she wants those shirt waists. Weird. Um... And no one the detectives talked to knew that Hazel was traveling with Minnie for the upcoming trip. No one had any idea of any of the plans outside of she's going to Lake George. So then Aunt Minnie shows up as a part of it, which is interesting. If she ends up at Sand Lake to visit her uncle, why is she wearing her very best clothes, right? So she's got this uncle near Sand Lake, not far from where she's found, but she's wearing her very best clothes, very fancy pin, very fancy hat, clothes that would make getting there really difficult. Um, and also, why again, why the sudden decision to quit her job. Um, 
Also, why does she need to borrow $2 from her mom? Again, where's her money? She'd been planning this trip since May. When did she ask her mom for that money again? July 2nd. That was the last time her mom saw okay. Hazel. And she's and and she leaves her her she puts her her notice in on the 6th. The, as 6th. the morning after she comes back with Minnie. Sure. Um but again, so the idea is like, weren't you saving your money so far? Like your your board and food is taken care of. Aren't you just like pocketing the money so you can take this trip? Um, and then there's also this issue of where on earth is Hazel's suitcase? She leaves the carries on July 6th, shows up to Minnie's with it on July 6th, and she's not found with it. And it's not near her belongings that were also placed very neatly on the side, right? So what's going on? Uh, in the meanwhile, Hazel is buried. Uh, her funeral was attended primarily just by the family, including her uncle, William Taylor. And detectives go up to William Taylor's farm to question him right after the graveside service, which, for the record, William Taylor did not go to. Uh, Taylor had been on the farm for 18 years. He was prone to depression and even tried to kill himself after his wife died the previous winter. He was a bit of a loner. Neighbors tended to avoid him. And he wasn't very close to the family, it seemed. Here's what they learned. In 1902, when Hazel left to work for Thomas Hislop, John Drew and the family were living on the farm with William Taylor. In 1906, a feud between John and William resulted in the Drews family move to Troy, with only Joseph and Eva staying behind until the spring of 1908, when they too ended up with a ruptured relationship. So the last remaining, you know, sibling of Hazel moves to Troy shortly before Hazel is, is gone. William said that Hazel hadn't been to his farm for months and he wasn't expecting her anytime soon either. But William did have a boarder of Frank Richmond who asked William if Hazel was at the farm on July 8th. And at the time, William was like, that's a weird question, um, but didn't do anything about it. Just said no. Uh, even when uh, he was informed, apparently the night before John Drew identified the body, a neighbor came, came and let William know that a body was found and it might be Hazel, and yet William did nothing. He didn't go to investigate, he didn't try to identify the body, and he did not try to contact the rest of the family. His reasoning was he was told that it was a body beyond recognition and he and that the only way to truly identify the person was through the clothes, and he didn't know what Hazel's wardrobe was like, so what's he going to do anyway? Yeah. Um, and so that's where they are. It's, you know, some time on, and the investigators are getting extremely antsy. So that is sort of the, the beginning of this investigation, right? We've made it all the way from the discovery of the body up until uh, the, the first few real figuring out what the hell's going on, right? So yeah. what I would love to do now is I'd love to pivot a little bit. I would love for us to start to put this together in chronological order. Oh. So the book that I relied on heavily for this um, is wonderful, but it does it in, in real in, like in real time insofar as like you are discovering things in the order that the investigators discovered that things. That doesn't help me. Does right. It's very confusing. Um and you know this information now. <laughs> Give it to me in a correct way yeah. that allows me to digest. To piece together what's <laughs> happening. Like there is merit to the to that method, no, no, but it's I not like for that. this. Yes. I understand when people when 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 book writers and like yes. they're right and and because it makes us feel like we're the investigators. Right. Fabulous. However. You know, however. Not useful right now. When putting a podcast mm -mm -mm. together, it's much easier to, to skip to the end when we know it happens and go work backwards. Yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so we're going we're gonna to pivot a little bit in terms of that. We're going to start by backing up a little bit so that we can put in order some events that led 
in the months up to Hazel's death. So Hazel, as we know, loves to travel, right? So in the months leading up to her death, she went to Providence and Boston and New York. While in Providence, she stayed with a friend named Mina Jones and her husband, Frank Jones. Ain't knowing Mina. <laughs> when police eventually tracked down Mina and Frank, they were already gone from Providence, now living in Massachusetts. According to Mina... Hazel made a comment to her once that she, Hazel, could get married anytime she wanted, but she wouldn't reveal who her beau was. All she would say was that he was young and good looking and that they had met at church two years prior around Christmas. And then she said something a little bit more menacing. According to Hughes, the one who wrote the book, quote, Hazel confided to Mina that she had been having problems with a strange man who had assaulted her on two separate occasions. She was able to get away both times, once by hitting him with an umbrella. She did not know the man, but described him as either Armenian or Italian and said he still followed her. Mr. Drew, Hazel's father, would eventually add that while uh, she had no steady boyfriends that he knew of presently, she had once been engaged two years prior. And the name eluded him now, but he sort of remembered a receding hairline and distinctive nose. Apparently... I don't know his name, but <laughs> weird nose, not great hair, <laughs> didn't think it would last. <laughs> didn't think I needed to remember his name. <laughs> didn't seem important. Um, apparently, Hazel also asked Mina to post a postcard in the mail um, that was being sent to Hyde Park, Massachusetts, to a man. Um, but who it was or why Hazel could not do it herself, Mina wasn't sure. Then again, in May 1908, we have this trip, right, at the beginning of the month to New York City. And then again, at the end of the month, over Memorial Day weekend, called Decoration Day, sometimes at the time. Who knew? Um, and this was with her friend, Carrie Weaver. Now... According to Hazel's employer, Mrs. Carey, Mrs. Carey herself had arranged for the girls to have a room at the YWCA, but Carey ends up relating that they were going to a different place that was more um, for working girls who were like new in New York and getting on their feet and finding a place for permanent residence. So there's some sort of duplicitous, like, why weren't they actually going to the YWCA and why were, you know, sort of something sort of weird there that Carey just lets slip. Now, at the time of Hazel's demise, Carrie was visiting relatives in Ohio. She wasn't due back until August. So investigators go out to Carrie to find out from her what's going on. Um, Carrie uh, was employed at the time by Professor Green and Mrs. Green, um, who both thought very highly of Hazel and Carrie. Carrie says that on July 6th, at about 12 p.m., the Greens brought Carrie to the train station so she could go out to Ohio, right, to visit her family. Um she said that she had gotten the impression that Hazel's upcoming trip to Lake George was with girlfriends, and she insisted Hazel did not have a boyfriend at all. Apparently, Hazel had promised to meet Carrie at the train station on July 6th to say goodbye, but never showed, and Carrie assumed something, you know, came up and she just couldn't make it or whatever. Didn't really worry. They asked, why would Hazel be up by Teal's Pond? And Carrie couldn't understand why Hazel would be in that area. Could she be visiting her uncle, maybe? And Carrie said, I have no idea. She didn't know about any uncle. And more than that, she said Hazel never talked about her folks, which would include, if you're going very literally there, potentially her parents, brother, and aunt. Carrie also said that she had no idea why Hazel would be anywhere near Sand Lake, further implying that she didn't even know about Hazel's stay with the Bly family the previous year. Um... So it's a very interesting thing where, you know, Carrie, who describes herself as a bosom buddy, clearly knows nothing um, compared with Mina, who's talking about, you know, Hazel fending off men with umbrellas. Carrie also wrote in a letter how she was amazed by Hazel's ability to, quote, stretch a dollar. 
unquote, wear stylish clothes, enjoy expensive lunches, travel, and all on this on, on just a little bit more than Carrie herself made. Even Mrs. Carrie could not understand, as printed in the thrice a week paper on July 17th, 1908, quote, How many times is that printed a week? Uh, I believe uh, uh, th- uh, th- three times, perhaps. Oh. <clears throat> It'd be funny if it was like once a week. (laughs) (laughs) It's named after Samuel Thrice, damn it. (laughs) Our founder. Uh, This is what it said. Um, They quote Mrs. Carey saying, I could not understand where Hazel got the money to take these outings. She volunteered no information and was so enthusiastic to her descriptions of sights seen that my suspicions were disarmed if I harbored any. So much for that. Carey confirmed that even as they returned from New York City, from... Their Memorial Day trip, Hazel announced she was already planning to go to Lake George on July 4th weekend. So that's confirmed. A few more incidents in the months leading up to Hazel's death. First, there's a bizarre dentist incident. Mrs. Carey reported that one night, Hazel asked to leave the house to visit her dentist. And Mrs. Carey was like, why? Are you in pain? It's nighttime, darling. Uh, Wait until business hours if you're not in pain. And Hazel never brought it up again. Now, eventually it was determined that a Dr. Knauf... Uh, was Hazel's dentist, and he told detectives that Hazel and a friend stopped by his office one evening a few weeks before she died and requested an evening appointment. He said he doesn't do that, and so she left and never returned. Mina Jones also made a comment once that Hazel said she could marry a man in a dentist office. So Hazel's mom begins, you know, making word association, I guess, sound associations like, hmm, I kind of remember a man named Wolf. Perhaps that was who she was engaged with. Wolf? Nauf? Could that be the same? But, it, you know, do that with that as you will. Regardless, it's a very bizarre behavior, this whole dentist business. And then there's a very bizarre incident to the Avril Park area with Minnie Taylor. Um, So Minnie confirmed that she, Hazel, and two friends, two gentlemen friends, when traveling one weekend a few months before, but Minnie positively refuses to give their names because she insists they have nothing to do with this and didn't want to drag innocent people into the affair. Minnie is getting more and more sketchy. Yeah. July 4th weekend rolls around and... uh, Per Carrie, and we've heard this from Mrs. Carrie as well. Very confusing that we have a Carrie Weaver and a Mrs. Carrie, but there we are. Um, Carrie Weaver arrives on July 3rd to see Hazel. They chat. Hazel packs, yada, yada, yada. July 4th, Hazel goes to Minnie's. They consolidate their packing. They go towards Lake George. And suddenly Minnie's like, mm, nah, it's kind of crowded. Let's not do this. They spend the day in Troy, go to Schenectady to visit Hazel's cousins. And they return the next day, July 5th. July 6th. Something odd happens. Out of the blue, no warning, Hazel marches down to Mrs. Carey at 9.30 a.m., quits, leaves the house, brings Minnie's clothes back to Minnie at 10 a.m. and says she's going away but will not reveal with whom. And now we're going to start the real meet. The next two days are integral because these are the last known sightings of Hazel prior to discovery. But uh, I think that's a good place to stop for now, Adam, and we'll have to pick this up next week. Oh, we're stopping? We're stopping. We're, we're going next we week. We got a two-parter. This is our second two-parter. Yeah. Oh, what good fortune. Look at that. Sort of bookending the year with two-parters. Well, look at us go. Hmm. Well, that's amazing. Well, that's exciting, y'all. So be sure to, I mean, you will. You're hearing us now. You're clearly going to come back next week or yeah. not. We may have annoyed you today. And you're like, nope, not coming back next week. <laughs> I don't want to know what happened. Don't care about Hazel. Don't care about <laughs> Hazel. Um, well, be sure to come back next week as you often do. Because Adam will have solved the mystery by then, right? Well, that's my goal. That's my goal. Excellent. I took I took studious notes. 
studious notes? Yeah, studious notes. Copious notes. Copious. You studiously took copious notes. I studiously took copious notes. Uh, As always, um, if you like what you hear, head on over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audible, and give us um, some stars, preferably five stars, and write a review. Let us know what you like. Let us know some of your theories. Love a theory. We love a theory. We're coming close to to our our season one finale. Ah! We will, we will go through all of your theories that you've sent us over the course of this year and uh, break it on down for you. So uh, really excited about that. Um, if you're interested in supporting the pod in a you know deeper way, head on over to patreon.com slash Machine, And for as little as three or five dollars, you can uh, help us out by uh, by um, being a patron. Uh, well, we'll be back next week with the other end of this episode. Really excited to find out what happens with this girl. Random and um, really don't know about many. Don't trust. Yeah. Shady, shady business. All right, folks. I've been Adam Ace. I've been Christina Marinelli. And uh, thanks for taking a ride on the Muke Mystery Machine. Time to haul the ghosts. Ooh.